I've got a sudden crazy idea. We should get Simon Holmes a court to get American citizenship and get him over there to sort out their political mess. Well, beloved listeners, there's nothing more powerful than an idea whose time has come. But sometimes those ideas need to go through iterations, practice and failure, renew, review and renewal before the moment comes when it can ride the wave of momentum. Now, our next guest has a great story to tell about the movement he founded and how it has changed the face of Australian politics. Simon Holmes Accord, the convener of Climate 200, the uh, community crowdfunding initiative that supported the community-backed independents who became known as the Teals because, yes, they're not quite blue, not quite green. Now, Simon tells the story behind the campaign in his new book, a little, dear little book, The Big Teal, which is uh, part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series. And I'm delighted to say he's sitting with me in our Sydney studio. Your story starts with a very interesting meeting with former Treasurer Josh Frydenberg and then... uh, getting kicked out of his Kuyong 200 election fundraiser. Yeah, so I've lived in Kuyong for about 20 years now. And as I started becoming politically engaged, I guess, about a decade ago, I thought it would be a good idea to meet my newly elected, young, up-and-coming, very ambitious local member. So no ministries at that point, no, no treasure, that was all... In his, in his distant future. And I thought, well, I'm going to be around a long time. This guy's going to be around a long time. And I'm really interested in how the the Liberal Party at that stage was at a juncture where it hadn't yet gone into the deep end of denial, but it was putting up flags that were pretty clear to see that it was heading in that direction. Well, you weren't too popular when you wrote an article critical of Frydenberg's uh you know, and, IG, and AGL. Yes, uh, after South Australia had its blackout in 2016, Frydenberg, I think, made a great mistake of politicising energy in this country. We, we had had a long period of bipartisan support for renewable energy, and after that blackout, uh, he brought uh, a massive fear of blackouts into the public consciousness at a time when all the experts were telling him, don't politicise it. This is, you know, a a series of tornadoes went through the state uh, and and set off a cascading series of events. But he he tried to politicise it. And I wrote an article talking about the strategic missteps that he made in picking this issue because he was going to lose anyway. And he was not very grateful. No, I'd been a member of his fundraising group, Kuyong 200, for two years at that point. And I'd paid my membership fees and I'd made a donation. And uh, within less than 24 hours after my article came out, he'd returned, he'd had the money returned on my credit card. So the whole experience cost me nothing. So Kuyong 200 stood for the aim to get 200 donors. Mm, that's how, there are a lot of 200 clubs around the country, uh, in, in particularly in the wealthy electorates, that raise significant funding to help re-elect their local member. But also it helps those members spray money around the party, helps them with their, their political, you know, their career trajectory. So, to Kuyong 200 will morph and find a completely new identity and it, purpose. It must. 
I didn't realise that you got involved in that uh, wind farm campaign. Yeah, I, um, my wife and I have a farm near Dalesford in central Victoria. And one Saturday morning I was walking down the main street and I bumped into a, uh, I would say, a, a crazy Dane who was obsessed with the idea that we could build a community-owned wind farm in our community. And it, it sounded crazy at first, but then he, he showed me the wind atlas. It's a very windy part of Victoria. He grew up in Denmark where most of the wind turbines at that stage were community-owned. And he had worked out how it was going to happen and I was captivated and signed up for his organisation. When there were about 500 members, I went along to a town hall meeting to decide whether we were going to go ahead. I walked into that meeting and put my hand up that I'd be interested in being a director and I, I walked out the chairman. It wasn't immediately a success, was it? Well, we tried to, yes, we, we had to raise significant money to, to build the wind farm and we put out our share offer in, it was July in, tw- in 2008 and just, we, we thought we'd raise all the money in about 12 weeks. Just after we put it, the share offer out, the financial crisis hit. You know, Lehman Brothers fell over. Everyone thought that it was going to be the end of the banking system. And, in, you know, in some ways, it, you know, it looked pretty credible at the time. So everyone sat on their wallets. And it, instead of taking us 12 weeks, it took us about two years to raise the funds. But we eventually did it. And about 2,000 people now own... Um, uh, the two turbines that sit on top of Leonard's Hill. And it's making a great contribution to the local power supply. Yeah, and in, in, in an average year, it puts more power into the grid than the local houses take out of the grid. So in a way, it's well, it's a cornerstone of that community becoming net zero well before other communities. Now, your next political lesson came from the Kids Off Nauru campaign. Yeah, and that was that was a bit of an accident too. I... I um, I remember being, I was really outraged when when uh, Alan Jones had twisted the arm of uh, first Louise Heron at the, um, at, at the Opera House and then Gladys Berejiklian had bullied them into projecting a horse race draw on, on the side of Outrageous, outrageous. Yeah. yeah, it's a World Heritage listed site uh, and part of the requirements are that it doesn't do any commercial uh, advertising on, on its exterior. I was outraged about that and I was also... Uh, I, I was outraged. I saw a, a campaign called Kids Off Nauru um, advertising in the paper. I had no idea at the time that there were children on, in, in offshore detention. And uh, the media around that revealed that there were children as young as 10 who were attempting suicide and there was a spate of sexual assaults on on children. And uh, the two came together in my mind. And I just sent out a cheeky tweet. Well, I would like to project Kids Off Nauru uh, with, with a picture of a child on, on Nauru that was the, the logo for the campaign. And you said you'd pay the same as New South Wales Racing. Eh? Yeah, I said I'd do the same and I, um, uh, and I got a call from someone in the campaign saying, welcome to the campaign. I said, what do you mean? He said, um, well, my tweet had exploded. Uh, order of magnitude, more likes on it than anything I'd ever written. People noticed it and they loved the idea and they said, let's do it. Let's do it. So you spark a fundraising campaign to raise the money and this must give you the confidence to further engage in politics. Well, actually, first, uh, f- first it terrified me. I had, I had $120,000 that we'd raised in three days from about 1,200 people and all of a sudden the gravity that I'm sitting on other people's money that has to be, uh, you know, has to be really, really carefully spent um, reminded me of... The wind farm days when we had collect, you know, when we'd raised ultimately ten million dollars from two thousand people. So I'd been in that position before, but I, I did, 
uh, we, you know, the campaign was successful. I was only a small part of it, but the campaign within within about ten weeks or so, all the children were removed from Nauru, and it was the you know, it, it was a very significant precursor to the Medivac legislation. Uh, another inspiration for you was uh, Karen Phelps, the independent MP at the time, who'd uh, who'd knocked off Wentworth after Turnbull's resignation. Yeah, after uh, after Turnbull had been chewed up and spat out by his own party, the people of Wentworth were, I think they were disgusted with the treatment of uh, a much-loved member, um, local member, um, and they chose a community independent. They chose Dr. Karen Phelps over what the big, you know, what the major parties were offering. Uh, I think that was a quite a turning point where we saw an electorate where we never thought uh, anyone but the Liberal Party would control uh, elected an independent to, to run, and, and Karen Karen um, came very close to keeping that seat in 2019. Now, in the meantime, the Voice of Indie movement, which saw Cathy McGowan and then Helen Haynes get elected in Victoria, was providing a sort of model. Yeah, and I make a big point of this in the book that I wasn't I wasn't there at the beginning. I'm only a small part and a newcomer to this movement. The people of Indi started uh, started this movement a decade ago, in the middle of 2012. They uh, started a process to the, called, called the Kitchen Table Conversations. They learnt this from Mary Crooks and, and the good people at the Victorians Women's Trust who had used this technique uh, against the Kennett government more than a decade earlier. And uh, they uh, Kitchen Table Conversations were... Uh, um, safe conversations around around kitchen tables and people's living rooms where they could talk about the shared uh, the shared aspirations, the shared values in a community, and then talk about the kind of leadership they wanted. And they uh, they decided that um, uh, to put forward Cathy McGowan as the community independent, and she famously rolled Sophie Mirabella in 2013. It's interesting, isn't it, that currently we're discussing The Voice from Uluru. But, uh, of course, most of these organisations you're talking about had voice in their name. Yeah, the, voice, the Voices campaigns, in a way, sort of ploughed the field in these communities where they, they had people talking about democracy for the first time, talking about what kind of leadership they wanted, but not, you know, not in a partisan fashion. Very few of these Voices groups actually put a candidate forward. Rather, they got the conversation going and then in every community there were two or three people who would say, we're going we're gonna to do this, we're going to find a candidate to run and then that would swell into half a dozen people and soon it's 20 or 30 and then it's 200 people on a Zoom call meeting uh, you know, regularly to hear updates of how they're going to do it. It's interesting, isn't it, that in February 2021, uh, Cathy held a national convention for community groups called Getting Elected. She expected 50 and ended up with 300 from 81 electorates. Yeah, I was on on the call and that that certainly um, opened my eyes up that it wasn't going to be just a flash in the pan in in, in Indi and Warringah, that there was hunger for this model. They'd seen... uh, Yeah, they'd seen how Zali Stegall and Helen Haynes in particular had uh, deported themselves in Parliament. They'd seen how Zali kept kept climate in the political discussion, how Helen had kept integrity in the political discussion and, uh, and they saw the genuine excitement in these communities. So, uh, the, yeah, the model, the model took off and about 30 communities that, that ended up com- um, putting forward a community independent in the last election. I got to know you 
because of your passion for climate change, which preceded this whole period. You know, you've been fighting the battle for a hell of a long time, haven't you? <laughs> I got to know you from reading your columns when I was a, a schoolboy at, at Geelong Grammar. Well, I'm but, not yeah. counting that. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, just as a, as a reader. But no, I've been, I've been um, plugging away on this issue for about 15 years or so, but thinking more broadly about the environment has been part of my family's culture. And of course, we were thinking that 2019 would be the big climate change camp uh, election. Yeah, a, a lot of people were trying to make it into the climate election, and uh, it it was probably it was a mistake to think it was a complete failure because it wasn't. There was um, you know, climate was a significant issue in a lot of electorates, but it wasn't it wasn't an issue everywhere. I think um, I think what what happened at this last federal election is politics became local again in a whole lot of communities and a, a whole lot of communities that had previously been considered safe seats had an alternative for the first time and people people loved the model. You were a political novice, comparatively, so getting good strategists on board in the early stages was important. I remember John Howard talking about the Liberal Party being a broad church. But by heavens, you put a broad church together pretty quickly. You had some extraordinary advisers. Yes, so I had a trial run of Climate 200 back in 2019, and I had no idea what I was doing. I mean, we we did some we did some good things, but we also spent some money on things that just had no no return at all. So after 2019, everyone was exhausted. I was exhausted. We did all our compliance uh, with the Electoral Commission, and then I put the organisation to sleep. But in the events that happened over 2020 and early 2021, made me realise that there was hunger for this model again and, and that community independence conference where those 80, uh, 82 communities turned up to made me think this is worth going again. So I engaged uh, two, two political experts. One was Anthony Reid. He'd run Kieran Phelps' uh, campaign in 2018. Correct, and then went on to run Zali Stegall's campaign in 2019. So he understood how community campaigns are built uh, and has just great political smarts. And then Byron Fay had been a staffer with Independent Senator Tim Storer. Um, he'd gone overseas, uh, did a master's at Oxford, went and worked on Joe Biden's campaign and came back to Australia full of, full of beans, thinking you know, with the latest techniques from, from the US, especially on analytics. But a number of other fascinating people put up their hands. Old friend of mine and Barry Jones, former Lib leader John Hewson, and uh, former Democrats leader Meg Lees. I was I was very lucky. I I went to these uh, these leaders uh, who, with with a fairly crazy idea, and I asked them to trust me and join our advisory council. And um, yes, and, and and Rob Oakeshott and Tony Windsor as well. And I forgot them. They're two terrific recruits. And, and then also the direct experience of um, Julia Banks and Karen Phelps um, also, also, joined our, um, also joined our advisory council. Okay, let's now focus on Julia because Julia Banks, the former Liberal MP who moved to the crossbench after raising issues about the treatment of women in the Liberal Party, who convinced you not just to focus on climate and integrity as key issues but to add that third value advancing the treatment and safety of women. Yeah, if you cast your mind back to early 2021, 
It was it was an extraordinary period in this area. We had uh, we had Grace Tame being announced as Australian of the Year, and um, Brittany Higgins draws a direct line between that and her decision to come forward with um, uh, with with her story. We had uh, the woman known uh, only as Kate, her story, um, uh, Christine Holgate, and Julia Banks account- gave her account, and it became very apparent. Um, clearly, the the March for Justice was a a flashpoint or a turning point in this movement, but Julia was finally attuned to it and saw it happening, and um, uh, and helped me understand just how white hot so many so many Australians, women and men, were with uh, not only the the treatment of women but the government's abysmal response to it. So, how did you go about deciding which candidates you'd support during twenty twenty two? Well, a key principle is we don't choose candidates. We we sat back and we waited for uh, for community groups to come forward to us, and we looked we looked for a few things. Firstly, we we needed to know that the community group was aligned with our values. So those values of a science based response to climate change, rooting out corruption from politics, and advancing the treatment safety of women. So we wanted to, to make sure we're values aligned. We don't have any policy, but we needed to. Uh, to know that we're aligned on those values. The second thing was that it was a strong campaign. A strong campaign needs strong people behind it. Uh, they need to have an ability to run events that people turn up to, raise money, get volunteers. And for us, almost the last part of that is an excellent candidate. You know, most people would think you want an excellent candidate first, but if you, there are lots of excellent people who run for politics, but without that support of the community around them, we don't think they're viable. You set a fairly high bar. Well, we didn't set... It, it's fascinating. The, the, the community set a high bar. If you think about the... I mean, you, you, you're, you're thinking about the quality of the candidates that ran. Yeah, if, if, we, if you think about the way that the political parties choose their candidates, they have a very small pool to choose from. It's people who have done their time, who have made the bargain with the party, who have done, uh, you know, compromised their way to a position where they're viable. And only two or three or four uh, face up to pre-selection. They played the faction system. Exactly. Whereas in this case, a community came together and looked across everyone who lived in the electorate and they had the pick of people who would never go into politics because they're not prepared to make those bargains. It's interesting, isn't it, that this whole approach energises not just a campaign here and a campaign there, but it energises entire communities. It was it was so exciting in, in, in my community of Kuyong uh, to see... Yeah, word word was going around. Who do you know? Uh, and then finally, a um, an ad, an advertisement was put in the paper on the thirtieth October last year. Uh, Are you the next member for Kuyong? Very audaciously, was placed in the Age and the Fin Review. And I uh, recently heard a, a wonderful story that uh, one of the founders of the Voices of Curtain over in Western Australia saw that ad in his in his financial review on a Saturday morning and carried it around in a laminated pocket for the next three months, signing people up. I want to walk it back just a little because you mentioned before your interest in the, well, high-tech campaignings, you know, the various sort of uh, skills that were being developed in the in the electronic, the digital age. Are they an important part of a teal campaign? Well, I think um, political parties... Uh, well, politics is one of the last areas of society to be disrupted by technology. Um, certainly, it's made um, in technology has made inroads in profiling voters and keeping 
vast digital files on us that are used to micro-target us in campaigns. But as far as organising, organising people, uh, technology is rather new to that. Uh, And I think it's really significant that uh, the pandemic accelerated our adoption of online meeting tools. You know, before, before the pandemic, only academics and, and business people had video conferencing software on their laptop and for everyone else it was too fiddly to bother with. Within a month or so of the, of the lockdowns, every grandparent in the country had Zoom on their computer and you know, every, everyone knew how to, how to use this new technology and it lowered the bar dramatically. So political parties... They're, they're, they're huge organisations. They're archaic. Um, so, well, sorry, I should say arcane, and uh, and very very analog. Whereas uh, these these um, new technologies have all adopted of um, social media and advertising. You know, Facebook advertising is affordable. TV advertising is not um, for small campaigns. So all of these this disruption that came uh, to politics has made it possible for communities to run viable campaigns. That's well, you're, you're right, of course, COVID was the big disruptor more than anything else, but I've been involved in elections all my life and uh, it's still foot-slogging, isn't it? It's still going around, knocking on doors, trying to talk to voters one at a time. Yes, but the first few hundred people organised rapidly online at, at, their, at the times of day that suited them uh, through, you know, through, through lockdowns every night of the week, there were two or three communities around the country holding meetings or public forums, uh, you know, rustling up um, volunteers and, and donations for this, for this model. And um, you know, in, in Kuyong, by the time the election came around, there were 2,000 volunteers who, uh, and they door knocked every house in the electorate. I think that's the first time it's been done, certainly in, uh, you know, in, in our lifetimes, I believe. Heavens above. Now, you've been criticised, sorry to tell you this, <laughs> of running a party of white privilege uh, and for rejecting more diverse candidates. How do you respond to that? Well, it's interesting. We, um, I, I am interested in the diversity of, of the movement. We stood back and waited for communities to put forward candidates. And it's, it's no surprise to me that it's... Um, it, 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 it requires people to down tools and focus for six months or so to build to build a campaign. You think of um, Dr. Monique Ryan, uh, head of paediatric neurology at uh, at the Royal Children's in Melbourne, quit her job to run as a candidate. You have to be from uh, a seg- certain segment from a, of Australia to be able to put that many very talented. Uh, volunteers who are able to commit 100% to the campaign. So I think at the moment this model, now it's not, there, there are great exceptions like in Indi, but this this model, it, it is harder for communities that aren't privileged to find the volunteering time and the skills uh, that can be no- donated to these campaigns. So I'm very interested in how this model continues. I mean, maybe it's it, it will be easier for the followers but uh, it's no surprise that it was communities that where, where people had the privilege to volunteer at these extraordinary levels to compete against the party machines. Simon, it's patently obvious that women are wary of entering politics after the treatment of, well, Gillard and uh, Julia Banks. How come so many women ended up running as independents? 
It's fascinating. When, when, whenever I go to meet one of these community um, democracy groups or you know, a Voices of group or a campaign to elect uh, an, an independent, they're three quarters women uh, in, in, this, in this movement. And there are, I think there are a few factors behind that. One is I think in unpaid volunteering across the across our society it's three quarters women um and that's that's something we we need to you know reflect upon but i think another thing about about this movement is that politics has been so unappealing to so many women i know who are, who uh, who aren't prepared to make the bargain that you need to to enter the political party the political parties uh, or, or politics hasn't changed significantly it's, you know, if I can say it, it's it's a it's a patriarchal system, and women have who are entering it have had to make a patriarchal bargain. And you can just just in the comments that Julia Banks made on the ten year anniversary, how if we remember, you know, she had to hide the real Julia, and she uh, had to do what she was told in order to run. Um, I think this model, this community model, has shown and and you know, lighthouse examples in in. Karen Phelps, uh, Zali Stegall, Helen Haynes, um, Rebecca Sharkey, they've shown that they can be independent uh, and they can still succeed. They don't have to make this patriarchal bargain. I think that makes this model appeal. I wasn't aware of the involvement of Ruth McGowan, one of Kathy's nine sisters, for heaven's sake. Uh, she trains hundreds of women a year. Yeah, she says, um, she says that so many women that she can tell have the uh, the smarts and the emotional intelligence uh, uh, in order to be excellent politicians, their first reaction is, oh, I could never do that. It's, 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 uh, I, I'm not capable. You know, they don't have the confidence to do that. And she, she laughs that she's never yet met a man who, who suffers from that same affliction. She also talks about the good bloke advantage and how to counter that. Well, the good bloke advantage, she, she says... Um, you meet people and they say, oh, I, uh, I don't agree with, with everything Barnaby says, but he's a good bloke, so I'll vote for him, right? So what, she said, what's, what's the female equivalent of the good bloke advantage? And I had a think and she said, no, don't, don't, don't bother. There's no, there's no equivalent of the good bloke advantage. Women just don't get that leg up. So you see Australia being at a point where the crossbench has seen a string of no-nonsense and accomplished women. Yeah, so I think that's better than the good bloke advantage. I think we uh, we all know we all know women in in, in our lives. In that, uh, you know, post um, you know they've they've proven everything they need to at work. They've they've got a certain level of confidence. They're not going to take uh, any rubbish anymore, and uh, and they're ready to contribute to society this way. And this model has given them uh, has given those smart, accomplished, capable women a way of entering politics without having to make any bargains. I'd like to see that good bloke syndrome destroyed forever. I have the great privilege of having Barnaby Joyce as my local member and I've seen it again and again and again. No matter what he did, no matter how appalling his performance, the old good bloke syndrome kicked in and uh, he'd get re-elected. It's interesting that we don't afford that to women. Certainly not. How do you regard independent Senator Jackie Lambie? <laughs> I, um, 
I have a soft, soft spot for Jackie Lambie. And one, th- I, I spend too much time on on social media. A lot, a lot of time on Twitter. I find it actually, um, and I don't know too much is in quotes there. I, I, I get a lot out of it, but I watch the amount of vitriol directed towards Jackie. And I, she doesn't always get it right. In fact, I think she gets it. You know, she gets she gets things eighty percent right, twenty percent. I go, why did you do that, Jackie? But the vitriol, it's almost. I think people people want her to be just like them and when she's not, it's like she's a traitor. Um, look, I think she tries really hard and if every politician in Canberra tried as hard as she did, we'd have a much better country. I knew your dad a little but and mum and I have been friends for decades and uh, she inspired you pretty much too. Well, that was a funny thing during the campaign that um, any media attention I got was al- always framed me in... Uh, you know, I, I was always described... Uh, as son of my father. Um, now, you know, I, I admired him. He was a great man, but he died 32 years ago. My mum's been um, uh, a big part of my life and who I am, but... Uh, and a big part <laughs> of a stranger's life. That's, that's, that's very kind. But, yes, she, she is... Um, there's there's, there's the, the, the number of, um, uh, of boards that she sat on. Uh, reserve board comes to mind. The, the Reserve Bank, uh, yeah. the Pro-Chancellor of the University of Western Australia, the, the long-running chairman of the Australian uh, Children's Television Network, a, a, a children's television foundation. Um, as, as you know, many, many, many things. But a, but a woman of, um, firstly, Im- immense emotional intelligence, um, uh, great um, capability and... Um, and personal skills, and um, a great manager of people. She's um, uh, yeah, and 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 fantastic values. She's been a big part of who I am. We're running out of time, and I'd like to turn to political donation reform. It's a mm. key platform of the independents, alongside the uh, call for a federal ICAC. Yes, um, there's a, there's a lot of focus on um, on on political donation reform. One of the one of the real challenges we have in Australia is how do we how do we fund elections? We can either fund it through donations or we can do it through public funding, and uh, we don't have any caps in in, uh, in, in the, at the federal level on on donations. It's it's a free for all. So we see Clive Palmer, for instance, putting. Um, uh, it was it was eighty six million in the twenty nineteen election and a hundred million in the one just gone, um, uh, and and to no great effect, fortunately. Yes, very. Uh, I think it's a fascinating experiment. Actually, it's, it's um, what would happen if you threw a lot of money at politics um, but didn't bring the community with you. And the answer is um, you would you would blow a hundred and eighty six million dollars. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. So, so there are um, there are definitely um, there are, there are calls for political donation reform. Um, and one, one thing I've you know, got to got to stress: so Climate Two Hundred, we, we we brought a lens on political donations. We raised a lot of money. There was eleven thousand two hundred people. We raised um, uh, thirteen million dollars. Uh, but we were out loud and proud talking about it. Well, the major parties like to keep it all dark and hidden under the covers. So. $13 million sounds like a lot of money, and it is, but the major parties in, in 2019, uh, the coalition, about $160 million, Labor, about $120 million, um, the Greens, about $20 million. So these are huge sums of money sloshing through our system. Do, do you sense a momentum to towards root and branch review of electioneering? I no, don't at the moment. No, I, I don't, but I... Um, we're, we're now helping campaigns in Victoria. Um, and Victoria's done a very interesting thing. They, 
decided after the red shirt scandal, that was when um, uh, the Labor Party uh, directed publicly funded staffers to do party work. Um, after that, they went through a large, you know, big, big set of, of um, funding reforms where um, the public is picks up the tab for the parties to run and a significant amount of, um, well, it's $100 million, the age recently reported, $100 million of public money supports the party's uh, system through the electoral cycle so they don't have to fundraise anymore. So that's a huge wall that we have to climb as uh, independent campaigns if we want to have a look in. So you can go too far and end up, as they've done in Victoria, entrenching the two-party system. Things are changing, of course, our electoral system uh, moving away from a two-party sort of oligopoly and more like the European model when lots of negotiations have to happen for any legislation to get through. Yeah, and I think we've seen you know, the hyper-partisanship of, uh, and, 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 um, of, of US politics and of UK politics uh, I think we've, we've um, I think there are some real signs that we've dodged a bullet at the last election that we we've moved away from a uh, your post-truth uh, leaders we've um, we've moved I think to a, uh, a you know, we, we've jumped a track I think we're on the same track as the, as the US and the UK and having um, moving moving to a system where it's 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 very likely we're very close to having uh, minority governments be a very normal thing in Australia. Ever tempted to run for office yourself? <laughs> it's interesting. If it was, if I had a ten percent interest before the campaign, it's now down to about zero percent, because I've seen up front the uh, the skills it takes to do the job well. Um, not only do you have to be an amazing communicator, you've got to have the passion to get out there every day and talk to everyone you can and listen to them and represent them. And it's it's grueling. I have nothing but respect for the people who, who do the job well. And you continue to resent the notion of being a puppet master because it's it's so insulting to the candidates that have been supported. It, no, well, not only is it, I mean, it, it it's definitely it's insulting and um, you know, a touch of misogyny that there must be there must be a puppet master behind these these women. But if you if you if you take the time to there's podcasts that have interviewed the women. If you take the time to get to know these women, they're um, yes, they're 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 amazing, and they um, would not stand for anybody to stand behind them. Okay, koala stamp with the gum leaf cluster, and thanks for coming on. <laughs> Simon Holmes, a court author of the Big Teal, and convener of Climate Two Hundred. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.